All right. Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Podcast. I am your host, Toby Passman. On the show with me today, I have a special guest, uh, Frank King. Frank is uh, a suicide prevention and postvention public speaker and trainer. He was the writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years, is a corporate comedian, syndicated humor columnist, and podcast personality who is featured on CNN's Business Unusual. Depression and suicide run in his family. He's thought about killing himself more times than he can count. He's fought a lifetime battle with depression and thoughts of ending his life, turning that long, dark journey of the soul into a TED Talk, a matter of life, uh, laugh or death, and sharing his life-saving insights on mental and emotional health awareness with corporation, association, youth, uh, and college audiences. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, by the way, um, I've done now five TEDx talks. Five. Tell me about how did that whole uh, thing get started? Where where did you originally get the opportunity to do a TED Talk? Oh, um, you know, I've been a comedian since 1985. And I always wanted to make a living in the difference. I always wanted to go from being a funny speaker to a speaker who was funny. And I could never figure out what I had to teach anybody. And then after I came so close to dying by suicide that I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like. Uh, Spoiler alert, you didn't pull the trigger. Uh, I realized in my family history of depression and suicide that I could speak on suicide prevention. The catch was I'm a comedian and everybody, event planner, meeting planner, speaker bureau, always just thought of me as a funny, clean comedian. So I had to figure out a way to rebrand. And my wife said, well, do a TEDx talk. I'm like, what's a TEDx talk? Just by chance that week, I got an invitation in the mail to submit an application to the TEDx was in Vancouver, BC. And so I submitted on suicide prevention, on starting the conversation on suicide. And I got it. They called me up and they go, Frank, we have good news, we have bad news. I said, what's the good news? Well, we'd like you to come up and perform in Vancouver at the TEDx. I said, what's the bad news? Well, you live in Oregon, Eugene. And we think, you think, that the Vancouver we're talking about is Vancouver, Washington, which is two and a half hours from your house. It's Vancouver, British Columbia. It's seven and a half hours from your house. So I ended up flying up. But it, that first TEDx enabled me to have something to show to meeting planners, event planners, and speakers bureaus that I could actually deliver a serious message along with the humor. And... Once I'd done one, an idea occurred to me for a second, third, fourth, and fifth, and now, now I'm pitching my sixth and seventh, all on mental health. And you know, it's not gonna get me a gig, having those big red letters behind me, but it gives you credibility. It's good for branding and marketing. And you know, people see on my, in my signature on my Gmail for TEDx talks across the bottom. You know, it, it does have some cachet. So that's how I was able to use the TEDx platform. And then I kept helping people get a TEDx for free. And my business coach said, this has got to stop. You need a website, you need to start charging for this. So now I, now I, now I charge for it. Now I do TEDx coaching, individual and group coaching. Um, because people kept asking, hey, you got five of them. I'd like to have one, can you help me? Sure. But now I, 
Yeah, I get paid. And and that's really important in the pandemic because I can do those from my little desk here in my bunny slippers. So that's yeah. That's the TEDx story. So uh, tell me about, uh, you know, sort of as a comedian, how, how you go about approaching, you know, a, you know, a serious topic of mental health, but being able to still find ways to laugh at it um, at different, you know, circumstances. And, and just tell me about like kind of the importance you think of, of being able to integrate, you know, comedy into kind of the mental health um, awareness space. Well, People ask me occasionally, does being a comedian hold you back or keep you from getting speaking engagements on suicide prevention? And I said, no, the, the reverse is actually true. That they book me because I've got lived, what they call lived experience, meaning I can say what the barrel of my gun tastes like. My family, it's called generational depression and suicide, runs in family. My grandmother died by suicide, my great aunt, my mother. So I have a lived experience with mental illness. I have two mental illnesses major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation. And, and I'm a comedian. Uh, I've been funny since the fourth grade. So they hire me for lived experience, plus I've taken courses on suicide prevention so I can teach them something, signs and symptoms, what to do, what not to do. And the humor, and the humor, there's a reason they call it comic relief. If you have to tell somebody something serious, if you can give them a little comic relief and then hit the next serious piece, they're much more, uh, they're, they're more, they're ready, more ready for the next serious piece. And I don't tell jokes, I tell personal stories. Like you heard me say, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like, trigger alert, I'm sorry, I didn't pull the trigger. Well, a friend of mine came up after a keynote, he'd never heard me say that before. And he said, and I quote, hey man, how come he didn't pull the trigger? Hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? <laughs> so, yeah, that gets a laugh from the audience, and that gives them a break, and then I go into the next serious piece. And what I try to do in, a, in that speech, whether it's a TED Talk or 45-minute keynote, is I want to make them laugh, I want to make them tear up, you know, move them from pole to pole emotionally, because it has much more impact. They're more likely to remember, you know, there's an old expression, they're not going to remember what you said, they are going to remember how they felt. And so if you can move them like that, then it has a greater impact on the audience. Um, and, you know, comedian, since the time of the court jester, has been, you know, the job has been speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless with humor. And I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of those often powerless in its grip with humor. Uh, and part of my job is to change people's perception about what mental illness looks like. When I get up on stage and say, you know, I know what the barrel of my gun tastes like, that it runs in my family, that I have major depressive disorder and something called chronic suicidal ideation, uh, which, by the way, it means for people like me and people in my tribe, the oxygen suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. When I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden, get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That is a, that's chronic suicidal ideation, relatively rare. However, every keynote I've ever given or training, except for one, there's been somebody in the audience who had that and they did not know it had a name. They, they just thought there was some kind of freak because of the way their brain was. And I had a young woman come up to me after a college keynote. I said, thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She said, but it made me weep. I go, how did it make you weep? 
She says, well, you know, the, the part about your car, get it fixed by a new one, you get it to kill yourself. Because I've been having those thoughts all my life. I, I didn't know that had a name. I, I just thought I was some kind of freak. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life that I am not alone, and I wept. That's my why right there. That letting people know that, in fact, it's you know, certainly has a name more common than you think, and there's lots of us out there. She said to me, I was hoping to grow out of it. She said, I'm 62. If I'm going to grow out of it, I better get started. So that's that's the connection comedy, mental health, mental illness, and why why I get away with what I get away with. You know, poking fun is a very dark subject. In comedy, there's a, a, a rule, I guess. You can make fun of any group to which you belong. If I was neurotypical or neuronormal, I couldn't get away with the, you know, the funny, the humor that I use in my talk. Because then you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not entitled to do it. So, right. One of the uh, one of the talks I saw was was the one uh, uh, the evolutionary advantages of mental illness. Yes. Which I thought it it was very interesting. Some of the points you made in there, um, along with being very humorous. But can you tell me a little about that one? Yes, I kept um, the way I get my ideas is is I, it's not, I'm an observational comic, and I, begin, I observe things. Uh, comedians are great noticers of things. And what I noticed was that everybody I knew who had a mental illness, who wasn't completely dysfunctional, had a corresponding mental ableness, a superpower, if you will. I said that to my sister, who has anxiety and depression, to go, superpower? We're not the X-Men, we're the Sand X-Men. Yeah. So, I thought to myself, it cannot be a coincidence that all these really talented people have these mental illnesses. So I began to do some research. And by the way, there's an, there's an article this morning in Inc. Magazine talking about depression. And they mentioned evolution. But it is, um, it may, as I said in my talk, that these things existed back in the like, caveman times. Um, and they were, in fact, survival skills. Uh, as, as they've been brought forward, they become a disability. Uh, for example, um, bipolar, living with bipolar. Anthropologists believe pretty much cavemen and women all bipolar because they had four months in the summer to gather enough stuff for eight months in the winter. So they were hyper, uber hunters and gatherers. They were hypersexual because they had to keep the numbers of people in the tribe up. So they, uh, and, then, and then as the days grew shorter and the nights grew colder, they would slip into a depressive phase and, and hunker down to survive the winter, deliver the, you know, the children. And then as the days in the spring got longer and warmer, they would begin to slip back into the magic phase, almost like, almost like bears hibernating. And so that, that was the cycle. And I said that, so back then that was a survival schedule. Um, somebody has to organize that four months worth of the stuff you gathered into eight months worth of survival. And I said, who better than somebody with OCD, somebody who is compulsively organized. That's who my quartermaster would be if I was a cave person. The guy who is compulsively organized so they can organize it into, you know, eight monthly allotments so you can survive the uh, plus OCD. You got, think about this, this is before penicillin, before Purell. There were, you know, there were things in the environment that if you ate it, 
ingested it or whatever it could kill you. So somebody in the tribe had to go, no, put that down, don't eat that. <laughs> it's not clean, it hasn't been washed. Um, the kids with ADD, ADHD, nowadays we joke, you know, squirrel, which is funny. But back then, if you had ADD or ADHD and you had a head on swivel, you know, squirrel is one thing. Velociraptor, that's important information to have. That's a survival skill. Dyslexias. Dyslexics have much better peripheral vision generally than neurotypical people. And they have an uncanny ability oftentimes to pick out the anomaly in anything. So I, the joke I wrote was never play Where's Waldo with a dyslexic for money because you're going to lose. So I would make that person or those people, the people that walk point as we move from like the winter grounds to the summer grounds, because they would look at a wall of trees and pretty much everybody in the tribe sees a wall of trees. But chances are, if there's somebody standing in that wall of trees, you know, covered in leaves and in disguise, the person with dyslexia is going to spot it. So each of these things was perhaps a survival skill back in the day. But of course, as we come forward and you strap a kid down in a desk for eight hours and make them face a blackboard, if they have ADD or ADHD, then that's gonna be an issue. Um, so I believe, and I think I opened the TED talk by saying, what if those of us with a mental illness are not living with a genetic mutation, but an amazing evolutionary adaptation? And what if mental illness is as Malcolm Gladwell says of such things in his book, David and Goliath, a desirable disadvantage. You would never wish it on anybody, but those disabilities come with a certain set of abilities. And the point of the whole TED talk was, because at the end, they always want action items. I said to the audience, Frank, that's very interesting, but what, what are we gonna do with that? Well, here's what you do with it. There's something called IEP, Individual Education Plan. What if we made it truly individual? If a child has one of these issues, let's treat the mental disability, OCD, whatever, and wrap our arms around, embrace and energize the mental abilities, and then steer them in a, toward a career where whatever their mental abilities are, are highly valued. Like if, if a child has OCD, why not steer them toward a career where precision attention to detail is is rewarded like banking accounting engineering architecture that's that way you know google's hiring people on the autism spectrum for their special ability they're willing to put up with the missing of the social cues to take advantage of these again what i think of as superpowers so that that's that's how it all came about and i think okay. if we could convince children that yes you have a disability that's true however with that disability, you have some abilities your peers cannot approach. And we can perhaps change the frame for them, you know, and perhaps reduce stigma and bullying and, and ultimately suicide. Right. The, what you're saying, it, it's actually reminding me a lot of uh, an episode I recently uh, recorded with a doctor, uh, Jim Poole, who basically runs this company, Fast Brain, that its whole purpose is basically figuring out how to best utilize, you know, children with ADHD, how to, you know, plug them into the correct educational programs in order to prepare them for careers that are actually yeah. going to suit their, their strengths. Right. Perfect. And, 
Yeah, no, I, I totally see the, the need for this. And it's well, and honestly course, bizarre that the education system, I mean, it's how yeah, you know, monotonous it is. Every, well, it wasn't designed, it was designed to create factory workers. Right. Um, the, not every kid is ready for first grade at six years old. I think it should be, you know, and a friend of mine taught music uh, instrument. And he said the kids with ADD, ADHD were some of the most talented he had. The problem was you strapped them in a chair for 50 minutes for a class, forced them to play scales for 50 minutes. He said the first 10 minutes they would get better, the next 40 minutes, completely wasted time. So he just on a whim got an egg timer and he set it at 10 minutes. He told the kid, okay, let's play scales for 10 minutes. They play the scales for 10 minutes. Okay, and he set the timer for 10 minutes. Let's practice our breathing for 10 minutes. And then it would go off and he'd crack it. Okay, now let's practice the piece you're going to be performing at the concert next week. And then crack it up again in 10 minutes and circle back to playing scales. He said they, the, the improvement, because the child knows they don't, have to, they don't have to spend who knows how much of their energy sitting still for all 50 minutes and doing the same thing. You know, they know it's only 10 minutes. And it's something I've actually adapted for my own for my personal work, I call it um, half hour power. I can do just about anything for half an hour. So let's say my taxes are due, and I hate doing it. I'll do my taxes for half an hour, and I set an alarm. And when the alarm goes off, I can go out and cut the grass, put on my audible, listen to a story for half an hour. The alarm goes off, back inside, back on my taxes, half an hour, back outside, cut the grass. So it's, you know, I can do these things in short bursts and get them done, rather than just, you know, strap myself to the desk and go, we're going to get the tax. Yeah, I mean, I guarantee I'm watching that clock <laughs> during my taxes. You know, come on, thirty minutes. But I, that's that's something I've adapted to my as part of my you know my mental health, um, you know, self care. Uh, so I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask about you know the the sort of stereotypical comedian, um, you know, the sort of self loathing, depressed character, right? I wanted to know just from your perspective, actually being a comedian and, um, you know, I'm sure interacting with lots of other comedians, how, how true that may be. And also if you think that's sort of a, a big issue as far as like mental health within the comedy sphere. Yes. I think not only comedians, but all sorts of creatives, I believe, and I believe statistics will bear me out that people, you know, creative people, comedians, singers, whatever, writers, have a higher rate of suicide than the average person in the population. And I, I think in part because, you know, they may have mental disabilities and that's why they have. I believe that my imagination, uh, creativity, comedy, timing, stage presence, whatever, is simply the flip side of my depression and chronic suicidal ideation. It's all the same wiring. And so we have actually got a podcast because so many comedians die by suicide. Podcast is called the Suicide Prevention Punchline. And of course the phone bank is called the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. But we have comedians, creators, and clinicians on talking about, you know, creativity and mental illness and mental health and suicide. Because it does, it seems to be that comedians, now most of the comedians I know are relatively upbeat and they may have mental illness. Um, 
friend of mine named Mike McDonald out of Canada, a comedian, once said, there's two kinds of comedians, diagnosed, undiagnosed. <laughs> so I suspect that there are many more comedians with diagnosable mental illnesses than we are aware of. And hence the uh, higher rate of suicide among comedians. And the idea of just, I mean, creatives, you know, like, uh, sort of like the, the uh, what is it, that sort of stereotypical, um, I don't know, like that sort of dark, you know, genius, right? You know, mm -hmm. we, we think of like artists and stuff, right? I mean, Van Gogh, sure there's tons, tons more examples of, of these uber creative people um, who happen to suffer from mental illness, I think usually depression or bipolar. Yep. Do, do you find, do you see it as sort of like, um, sort of an, the, like the comedy, do you sort of see it as like an outlet to sort of, um, or sort of something to sort of buffer the effects of that, what, what, you're, what you may be dealing with? Well, you know, it is therapeutic. The comedian has the ability, the license. If he has a bad day, she has a bad day. You know, you can get up on stage that night in a comedy club and rant, as long as it's funny. And some of my best stuff has been written when I was terribly depressed and angry. But, you know, I used that fuel to create the comedy. You know, I had a bad experience in a rental car, on a flight, with somebody, you know, some individual. And oftentimes that, that energy, you can, if you can harness it and, you know, and put it into a, what they call a bit, you know, I was going to start with something else for you guys, and I can believe my day. You know, I'm, I flew in here on a commuter plane. You know what that means, commuter plane? It means my travel agent's a dead man. Some of them told me, big plane, big, big plane. It's a Boeing 7.7. You think I'm making that up? Three guys in front of me are weebles. That actually happened. I got flown into a cruise gig on a guy. I hate commuter planes. Uh, and that night I went on stage and just, you know, ranted about my travel agent. Uh, of course, I have since, uh, every time, not every time I perform, but I can recreate that as if it just happened. That's the, that, that's the genius of comedy, by the way, I think, is to make it sound like whatever you're talking about, it just happened to you. Robin Williams, I worked with him a couple of shows. The shows were almost identical. Different people in the audience that he talked to, but the shows were roughly identical. The, 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 uh, masterpiece uh the the real talent is he made it look like whatever was coming out of his mouth came right off the top of his head and that was the first time he'd ever said that that i think is the genius when you can make it look like it just occurred to you bill bill burr is one of my favorite comics for that reason when he's up there ranting you would swear you just thought it so what are it is very therapeutic to go on stage and be able to vent uh, and, you know, comedy is born of pain. Uh, comedy is tragedy plus time, famously. So. What are some of the other uh, qualities or traits you think go into uh, kind of making a great comic? Unfortunately, one of them <laughs> is not a good business now. Uh, I started with 30 other guys and gals, maybe 35 at open mic night. There are three of us still making a living speaking or doing comedy. And, and the three of us are not the funniest people from that 35 comic group. We are just the only ones who had the comedic ability and the business ability 
and the you know stick to itiveness to make a career out of it. So I find oftentimes you don't find a business person and a creative person in the same body. Now, if you're lucky, the comedian who's creative finds a manager who's got a good business sense. Um, Foxworthy got a manager early. Steve Harvey got a manager early. Uh, Larry the Cable Guy got a manager early, so they didn't have to worry about the business end of it, which is, you know, as I do. If I didn't have to worry about the business end of it, I'd be a lot funnier because I could spend more time writing jokes. But I spend 85% of my time trying to get booked, 5% writing, 5% traveling, 5% performing. Those guys were the manager. Um, so it, it is often, I would say it's rare when you get a comic or other creative who actually has some business sense to go along with it. Because it is show business. Right. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the podcast that you had uh, mentioned earlier. Um, tell me about uh, so the suicide prevention punchline. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about like uh, how you, I guess, first what inspired you to do that. And then also just kind of how you go about selecting your guests and, and what goes into an episode. Last fall. Two comics, one that I knew well, one that I didn't know, died by suicide the same month. And I was talking to a friend who had lives with mental illness. Um, I've, I've helped to get two TEDx talks. I'm helping her become a speaker. She's a comedian. And we were talking about death by suicide of comedians. And we decided, you know what? We should do a like a funny mental health, again, funny mental health podcast wrapped around comics and suicide. So we have most of the guests we have are comedians and all the guests we have are comedians have a mental health issue and so what we do is we talk about you know how they got started in comedy and you know how do your parents feel about it and, and as you said does is the comedy in any way therapeutic for you does it influence or inform your comedy and then we talk about okay now this is suicide prevention punchline what are your coping skills? How are you coping? What do you do? What's your self-care plan? So we explore how they are remaining high functioning, especially in this environment where comedy clubs are closed and speaking gigs aren't happening. And I mean, it's very stressful for gig workers. You know, when the, it's great when you got 600 bucks a week as a gig worker, that was cake, but that ran out. Uh, and, you know, the uh, moratorium on foreclosures and, and evictions is run out. So it's, it's for gig workers, speakers, comics, Uber drivers, you know, things, it's, it crashed and burned at the end of July. So we talk about the stresses and strains and how they are coping. Did they have any or have they had any issues with thoughts of suicide? Have they attempted? Uh, idea being that people don't talk about depression, thoughts of suicide even though one person dies by suicide in the U.S. every 11 minutes. However, if you bring it up, if you start the conversation on it, almost everybody's got a story about themselves, a family member, a friend, college roommate. That's, that's the, that was the theme of my first TEDx talk, start the conversation on suicide. Give people permission to give voice to their feelings and experiences surrounding depression, thoughts of suicide without recrimination. I, I do a show, I do Q&A afterwards, and then I tell the audience, look, if you got a question you don't, you don't want to ask in front of everybody, I'll hang out. And sometimes there's one person, sometimes there's eight. 
and each one has a story. And sometimes they're telling you things they've never even told their family or their therapist. I had a guy come up to me, six, seven years old, said, Frank, I got chronic suicidal ideation because I've never told anybody that. I've never said that out loud to anybody but you, not even my therapist. Why not the therapist? I live in California. If I tell my therapist what I just told you, by law, he is bound to drag me in front of a judge and they will decide whether to, to do an involuntary detention order and lock me down. It's called the 5150 in California. Lock me down for three days in a gated mental health community with no belt or shoe frame. So I don't tell anybody. So it's, it's if, I think we, if, we, if we allow people to give voice to these feelings, people would, wouldn't die by suicide too often. Because how many times have you heard, we had no indication, we made no indication, never said anything, didn't say he was depressed, they're saying, you know, he dies by suicide. We had no idea. Well, I teach how to spot the signs of depression results of suicide. So you, you recognize when somebody says something, does something, you know, eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They don't want to die necessarily. They, they want to end the pain, but they, they, you know, they want somebody to interrupt. And nine out of 10 people in the last week leading up to an attempt give hints. They want somebody to notice and stop them. So that's why I teach the signs and symptoms. So you can, you know, you can you can see those things and, and realize, oh my God, that's what Frank said. The guy's letting his personal hiking go. I bet he's depressed. Hair's a little dirty, his clothes aren't as clean. Um, he hadn't shaved and you know, it's just not like him. So you ask the question, dude, are you depressed? No, I'm fine. No, no. I just had a class, <laughs> Frank King. He said, one of the uh, top five or six signs of depression is you're letting your personal hygiene go. Look at you. That's not COVID casual. <laughs> that's killing yourself casual. So that's, that's you know, why I do what I do. And that's what we talk about on the suicide prevention pencil. Right. And it, it seems like interjecting the, the element of humor is definitely, I mean, first off, just probably captivates a lot more people. I mean, compared to if there's some, you know, if they're at some high school and they have some teacher lecturing to them about, you know, suicide statistics or whatever. I mean, if you, yeah. it seems like presenting it in an engaging comedic yet at the same time, serious communicating a serious message as well, like seems like a really cool way to do it. Yeah. It's, you know, rather than have a clinician come in, because the information is the same. Uh, I did a college, Lynchburg College, and the young woman came up to me afterwards. And she said, is it okay if I hug you? Okay, now this is right in the middle of the Harvey Weinstein Me Too movement. Everybody in the room's got a video camera on their phone. I'm like, oh, dear God. You know, photographs, you know, speaker groups go in. Right, so I gave her a very brotherly hug where I shoved my pelvis back. <laughs> you know, so it would not be no mistake. And I said, are you a hugger? And she goes, no. I go, well, what's uh, the hug? She said, well, I've been in therapy for two years. And the woman I'm going to therapy, the woman I'm using or seeing is extremely talented. You know, she's got a great education, you know, all the certificates on the wall, but she doesn't have any context for what I'm going through. She's, she's neurotypical. She's never experienced any of what I'm going through. She goes, I'm sitting in the back of the room, listening to you, 15 minutes in, I'm thinking to myself, this guy's inside my head. 
She said, you did more for me in 45 minutes than that woman has done for me in two years. That's the benefit of, of, of having contacts. Also, the benefit of peer counseling. Like somebody, you know, you, you hear the same music, you have the same experiences, you know, you're, I put my phone number up on the screen, my cell number. I go, look, if you're suicidal, call the lifeline. If you're just having a really bad day, call the crazy person, there's my cell. Because I'm not gonna judge, I'm just gonna listen, you don't have to explain anything to me because I get it. And people, you know, not a lot of people call, but some people do call or text. And oftentimes it's just to get resources. But sometimes you're just having a really bad day and you need to talk to somebody who understands. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you also about your, your book. So Guts, Grit, and the Grind. Yep. I, I was just taking a look at, at, uh, at sort of the website about it and, and seeing so it's sort of like uh, sort of a mental health manual, but it's more catered towards men. Very much so. And that, that seems like something, I mean, in, obviously there's still a you know, stigma about mental health in general, but it seems like definitely there's more so, I would, I would say more so of a stigma for men. I don't know if you agree with that or not. Oh yeah. Uh, and um, Sarah Gare, who, it was her idea, she teaches what's called QPR, Question Persuade Refer, Suicide Prevention, to first responders, mostly men. And she went to the bookstore, Barnes & Noble, Bricks and Mortar, looking for a book on men's mental health, thinking, you know, she might make it as a gift to some of the fellows. And she couldn't find it. So she went online on Amazon, men's mental health. Nothing, nothing specifically about men's mental health. So she got the idea. She asked a couple of men she knew, what kind of advice do you want from whom and in what form? And they said, well, if you're gonna take advice from anybody, it's gonna be from a man who's having a similar issue and we wanna know how he is coping with it. See how another guy is coping. So that's how the series of the four books was created. The first one came out in March, second one came out last Sunday. It's, it's each one is 12 contributors. Sort of like chicken soup for the tortured man's soul. <laughs> Each one of the men has an issue, bankruptcy, substance abuse disorder, whatever. And the way the story is organized, 500 words, things are good. The next 500 words, things go bad. The last 500 words, here's how I'm coping. So it's not the kind of book that you would read cover to cover. It's like an, it's, it's designed like an automobile owner's name, like a Haynes manual. If you if your carburetor is giving you trouble, you pick up the you know the um, automobile owner's manual or the Haynes repair manual. You're not going to read it cover to cover. You turn to the section on carburetors, and you're going to use that to you know fix your carburetor. So we figure a guy will pick up the book because it has you know mechanics theme and and metaphors, and flip through the index and find somebody with his issue and see how that guy is dealing with. It. There's also um, clinical information in there and exercises and resources. And it's, and the problem, eight out of 10 people who die by suicide now in the US are men, eight out of 10, mostly Caucasians, mostly 45, 64, 45, 64. Um, and the number one at-risk occupation is, it kind of goes back and forth between mining, construction, and excavation, all male heavy occupations. And 
men, it's called toxic masculinity. Many men are raised with big boys don't cry. You don't reach out. You you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you, you know. And so they don't reach out for help. You know, and, and it's not just mental health. And it's not just it's not just physical. I've had a couple of friends die of colon and prostate cancer because neither neither one had a colonoscopy or a PSA test. I don't think ever. And these are things that can be cured. You know, the the survival rate on those two is is great if you catch it early. But because they're men, and because you know that's not what men do, they they died young because that's you know they're tough guys. Yeah, you know. So <clears throat> we decided to do men because eight out of 10 suicides nowadays are men and they're less likely to reach out for help. So we're hoping the book will you know, give them some information, a starting point perhaps. They, and there's been several movements established. One's called the barbershop movement here in the US for African-Americans. Barbershop has always been kind of a safe space for African-Americans, even back during Jim Crow. And so they're training barbers in mental health um, first aid, essentially, to talk to the, and here's the, here's the key. The barber and the guy in the chair, they're not looking each other in the eye. They found that if men aren't looking each other in the eye, if they're doing something else, they can talk about important things. You know, there's, I've got a friend who goes fishing with his dad and they face opposite directions in the boat. And he goes, we can talk about anything if we're not looking each other in the eye. So that's what they discovered about men. As long as they're doing something entirely, you know, <laughs> different than than what they can talk about things that are important. So it's uh, and there's several movements around the world like that where they get guys together doing something, auto repair, metalworking, woodworking, and as they're working, they're chatting because they're focused on something else. Right. No, it's so funny. I I love that idea because I mean, just personally, it's like I I find like the the conversations like the the deepest realest conversations i end up having with like good friends or family they end up being over the phone you know so without that like face-to-face -face component so maybe that sort of explains sort of why well and younger people are often more forthcoming in text again it's even one step beyond the phone you're not you know you're not, you're not voice to voice you're text to text that's why there's a that's why there's now a suicide prevention text line you text the word help to 741-741 and chances are there's a younger person on the other end to, you know, help you. Right. Well, Frank, what, uh, are there any future projects or where do you see, uh, like the podcast going and doing anything different, uh, or different books in the future? What, what, uh, what sort of ideas do you have? Well, we have two more books, book three, book four, again, dozen authors in each. Um, different, each, each person has a different issue each in each book. And so we'll, we'll finish up those probably by the end of the year. I, and I'm, I'm adding the humor and adding the automobile metaphors. And I'm also voicing them for Audible. Um, if you go to my website, thementalhealthcomedian.com, there's a free download of an MP3 of the first book, all four hours and 14 minutes of it, me narrating it on a bridge, and it's free. So and what I'll do is as I record those, we'll put one up on Audible for sale and I'll put them all on my website in case somebody wants to download them and listen to it for nothing. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm applying now for my sixth 
and seventh TEDx talk we'll see also on mental health. One's called depressive realism. Maybe the glass really is half empty. Uh, there's some science that says that people with depression see the world more accurately than people who are neurotypical and often see it as they wish it were, you know, through the rose-tinted glasses. Whereas people with depression tend to see it as it is. Um, it's not definitive yet, but there is some research. Um, and the other one is um, mental health and the orgasm, treat your depression single-handedly, which I think is gonna be a spectacularly fun. Um, you know, I love my iPhone, but it is my second favorite handheld one. So it's, that, that's where I am right now. Uh, and, and hoping to add TEDx, you know, six and, and seven to the list. And I'm coaching TEDx, as you can see, this is my TEDx. So. I'm helping people get TEDx talks. Uh, it's a process, you know, the average TEDx event gets 200 applications. So your application has got to stand up. Otherwise you go right into no problem. And I help people, you know, with a title, subtitle, make it interesting so that the, the team that's evaluating, you know, they read their title, subtitle, can't put it down until they figure out what's going on. Awesome. Well, any, uh, any other uh, resources or social medias uh, for people that enjoyed the show today? Yeah. If you just go to, I've been branding for quite a while. If you just type the words, the mental health comedian, the space mental health, mental, mental space health <laughs> comedian, you'll find my Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, and my website, of course. So that's, I, I think I may be the only mental health comedian to the group. So yeah, I'm easy to find online. Awesome. And uh, for those of you guys who enjoyed the show, go ahead and like and subscribe uh, to uh, the YouTube channel, Roscoe's Wetsuit. And you can also find audio versions of the podcast available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher. There's a few others that I'm forgetting, but those are the main ones. So go ahead and check us out. Frank, Sorry. that was good timing. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. I'm going to grab the phone. Thanks for being patient with me. Absolutely. All right. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Frank King, the mental health comedian. I'm going to just share a few uh, thoughts that I had uh, doing that interview. Um, first, I thought it was really interesting uh, what Frank said about um, he doesn't tell jokes, he tells stories uh, in the sense that uh, his material is not uh, purely uh, for humor. Um, he's often dealing with very serious topics, uh, just in a humorous fashion. Um, and he explained also why that's so powerful um, as far as uh, kind of being able to loosen people up in terms of being able to actually hear those very serious messages um, after sort of being um, primed with, with uh, a humorous joke. Those were a couple of the main things uh, that I got from the interview with Frank. Um, I think he, uh, he's able to use his uh, uh, comedy skills um, really to get a whole audience uh, to listen to him about very serious stuff that, and oftentimes they come up to him afterwards and tell him how impactful uh, his presentation or his routine was. Um, despite it you know, looking to be just comedy, I think it's, it's actually a lot more. So it's really cool to hear some of the work that Frank is doing.